The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Welcome to the Inn. I'm Janie. I'm on staff here with University Ministries. So Halloween is coming up. My nephew actually told me the other day that Halloween is in September. So <laughs> September's here. There's some pictures from um, freshman group carved pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns last week. There's some of their pictures to help us get in the spirit for Halloween. And I have a couple great costumes to tell you about, some of my favorites. When I was in fourth grade, I went um, trick-or-treating as the Statue of Liberty. So I had like a, a sheet, I had like a toga, and I carried an encyclopedia, and I made like um, tin foil points coming off my headband. But the best part was my flashlight. We made it look like a torch, you know, but it was like multi-use because it was actually a flashlight, which is exciting. And then a few years ago, um, I was living in a house, and we went trick-or-treat, or we didn't go trick-or-treating because we were like 25. Um, <laughs> we went to a party, and we went together as the movie Friday the 13th. So one of the guys wore a hockey mask and a trench coat and had a fake knife, and the rest of us wore these horrible 80s clothes and had fake blood and wounds all over us, and I had like a knife going through my head. Um, but the best costume that I... I love is a few years ago, my friend Nick, he took a refrigerator box and he cut a door out of the refrigerator box and he put a moon on the door um, and he went as a porta potty. Um, and so he had like a roll of toilet paper sticking out the side and he put a sign on the door that said, please knock. And then whenever anybody would knock, he'd go, oh, somebody's in here. So that was a great, great costume. Although I have to say, Halloween was a bit more exciting when I was eight years old because it was all about getting candy. Lots and lots and lots of candy. Which, if you think about it, is kind of a strange tradition. And I was trying, I remember as a kid thinking, okay, I wear this ridiculous amount, or excuse me, I wear this ridiculous outfit and I get an obscene amount of sugar. I can do that. And I try, to rem- I try to figure out the economics of it. So I go up to the doorbell and I say trick-or-treat and they give me free stuff. All right, I'm not going to question it because there's candy involved. But then afterwards, everybody would get their loot and you'd all sit down in a circle in someone's living room in a scene that I can only equate to what happens on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, there's all this bartering going on, trying to get rid of the crap candy and figure out a way to trade up for like a blow pop or a fun-sized Charleston chew or something. And then you'd always have those random like boxes of sun-made raisins. You know, you'd be like, what's this? Or I remember someone in my neighborhood always gave us a bag of pennies. We'd be like, pennies? What do I need with pennies? Um, So it's, it's always a good time. And besides getting lots of candy, Halloween is also about getting the pee scared out of you, right? Did you guys ever hear those urban legends associated with Halloween that there were these certain neighborhoods where they gave out full size candy bars? Everybody knew about these neighborhoods and you tried to find where they were. It seems like that was just as prevalent as the, as the legend about pe- someone biting into a Halloween apple and there's a razor blade in it, which never happened, but everybody's heard that story. You guys didn't hear that? Oh, that was the reason. When I was a kid, we couldn't go trick-or-treating because there might be razor blades in the candy. Anyways, um, 
Regardless, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, there was one house. There was one house, the Fitzroy house, that supposedly gave out full-size candy bars and sometimes king-size candy bars. It was too amazing to believe. And that's what all of the older kids in our neighborhood would tell us in the weeks leading up to Halloween. And so we always thought that's where we needed to go. It's pretty exciting. It was the coup d'etat, I guess. We wanted to go in there and take over. I remember this one year, I think it was one of the first times that I trick-or-treated by myself without an adult. And I went with my next-door neighbors, Heather and Shauna. And we were trick-or-treating, and we walked up to the Fitzroy house, and we looked at it, and we decided that we wanted, we wanted, to, we wanted to do it. We wanted to go up to their door and knock on the door. But the problem was... They had all of these spooky Halloween decorations, like all over the lawn. There were these giant bats and full-size witches on broomsticks, and there was some sort of cackling going on in, in the background, and it was really dark. But we mustered up the courage to go up and knock on the door, going arm-in-arm arm up the driveway, really slowly, keeping our eyes peeled, until suddenly, this huge gorilla in army fatigues jumps out from behind this bush and, like, roars at the top of his lungs. And all I could do was scream like a little girl because I was a little girl, right? And I wanted to run right away. And Shauna was immobilized with fear. She's just standing there. Her face was white and her eyes were, like, huge, like saucers. She could not move. So Heather and I looked at Shauna. We looked at each other. And we immediately bolted down the driveway. <laughs> I know we shouldn't have we shouldn't have left it there, but I hadn't found the Lord yet or something. But <laughs> we got that as soon as we got down to the street, we decided we needed to go back up and get her off the driveway. Um, but once we got there, she was already inside the Fitzroy's house having hot chocolate and eating her full-size butterfinger or something. I don't know. Needless to say, that stands out in my memory as a day in my life when I was totally overwhelmed by fear. Shauna was immobilized by fear. She couldn't even move. And tonight, we're going to look at another account in the book of Mark about Jesus. And we're going to see some folks who have been overwhelmed by fear themselves. And we're going to see how that fear impacts their faith and how that impacts how they see Jesus. If you've been here this quarter, we've been going through the book of Mark. And we've been asking the question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And we want to look not only at what Jesus did in the gospel, what were his actions, his behaviors, how did he interact with people. We also want to look at how what Jesus did 2,000 years ago has an impact on our lives and our faith today in 2008. That's what we're trying to look at this quarter. This quarter. And so far, we've seen Jesus come busting on the scene at the Sea of Galilee, calling these dudes to follow him as disciples. We've seen him healing and teaching and casting out demons and spending a lot of time with sinners. And tonight, we're going to see him perform some more amazing miracles. But what I think is actually more important in what we look at tonight is we're going to see what happens when people come face to face with their fears and with their faith, and how Jesus is intermingled in both of those things, their fear and their faith. But before we do that, I want to stop a minute and pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you are our God. 
We are so grateful that you are with us in every circumstances, even in our fears. Lord, I pray tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. Be with us here, Lord. Let us know your presence. In your holy name, amen. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 4. Um, and this might be a familiar story to you. It's Jesus calming the storm. You might have heard it before. We're going to look at Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. And he's referring here to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with them. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Peace, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So Jesus, as he has been going around to different parts in this area, he's been gathering more and more crowds of people around him wherever he goes. He's becoming more well-known. And he's been doing significant teaching right before this to the crowds that follow him. And he decides to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it might have been because he wanted to escape the throngs of people that were always around. I love how Mark throws in lots of details that kind of seem like they might be throwaway details, but they give our stories that we read some real depth. And um, they're kind of cool. And I love how it says that they go um, across the... See, but also some other boats go with them. So Jesus tries to escape them, but they get in the boat and follow him. But Jesus is exhausted enough not to care, and he conks out right away, falls asleep. Now, while they're out in the boat, a huge storm's come up, and the disciples are freaking out. Now, I want to say again how great it is that Mark doesn't just give us the story of Jesus. He also tells us what the humans do in the story. And he gives us a picture of humans acting... Like, well, humans, which is to say often some, like, idiots sometimes, right? And when I first read this story, I think of the disciples when the storm is picking up, saying, oh, man, we're going to die. It's over. Jesus doesn't care about us. Pack your bags. We are done, like, right away. Not what's our plan, just we're goners. Total doomsday pessimists, complete eors. It's kind of like... I would say, in my context, it's kind of like listening to Nolan walk into the human office. Most Monday mornings this fall, you know, his shoulders are kind of slumped. Oh, man, life sucks. The Huskies lost. The Seahawks lost. My fantasy team is in the toilet. The Mariners were terrible. We don't even have the Sonics anymore. My life is over. Now, I know I'm picking on Nolan a little bit, but you can ask him. That's a direct quote. And I think that we can say that probably any of us, any humans, when we look at chaos or craziness, we immediately go to the horrible outcome. That's what we anticipate. Oh, man, I'm screwed. My life is over. And to be fair to the disciples, some of them were actually fishermen. 
So if they were nervous about a storm, there was probably a reason to be. But they've been spending a lot of time with Jesus. They've seen some amazing things. And all of the trust and the confidence that they've built up to this point, the way that they feel being with Jesus when the waters are calm, listening to him teach, seeing him heal people, seeing him cast out demons, it's all gone in an instant. And they are petrified. The faith faith they had is non-existent. All they know is fear. Now, Jesus, in sharp contrast to the disciples running around like crazy people, he's sleeping soundly on a cushion. It's another great throwaway line that Mark puts in there, maybe to tell us how comfortable he was that he was sleeping on a cushion. But get the visual picture in your head for a second. There's this massive storm. The wind is probably howling. The boat is being tossed all over the place. The disciples are screaming, we're going to die. And Jesus is curled up getting his snooze on. He's sleeping. I don't know about you guys, but when there is chaos and there is a storm in my life and there's something brewing, I can't stop thinking about it, the first thing out the window is my ability to sleep. I'll toss and I'll turn and I'll try to read. I'll think I'm hot and so I'll take off covers. I'll think I'm cold and so I'll put on covers. I'll make lists in my head to try and fall asleep rearrange my top five list for my favorite people in the human office. (laughs) But you're wondering who's on that. But I'll do anything I can in order to fall asleep in the midst of what is bothering me. And yet, in the midst of the storm, Jesus sleeps. Jesus is asleep in trust and confidence because he knows in life and in death he belongs to God. No matter what happens, no matter what the outcome is, he is confident that he belongs to God. But that is a place these disciples are not at. So they do the next best thing and they wake Jesus up. Again, they kind of show how human they are and how they go about it. They don't gently rouse Jesus and say, Hey, buddy, sleepyhead. We kind of got a situation going on here. Sorry to bug you. Could you help us? Instead, they follow their gut reaction as a result of their fear, and they accuse Jesus of not caring about them, probably yelling over the roar of the storm, Don't you care about us? We're all going to die, and there you are sleeping on your cute little cushion. Part of me wonders if they're frustrated with Jesus, not because they expected him to calm the storm, because by their reaction, they seem pretty surprised that that was what he did. Maybe they just wanted him to get up and start bailing water out of the boat right alongside of them. But regardless, Jesus woke up and he immediately dealt with the problem at hand. For the disciples, it was a foregone conclusion. They were going to die. No faith, just fear. But Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves, yelling, Peace! Be still. And they are absolutely blown away. The disciples are shocked. Who who is this guy that we've been spending time with? And they see, yeah, okay, Jesus does care about us. Simple, straightforward. And the disciples are in awe that nature, the storm, the sea actually listen to the words that this man says. 
And then Jesus turns to them and asks, where is your faith? We've been spending all this time together. Think about what you've seen and where is your faith? Because like we've already seen in Mark, Jesus didn't come and perform miracles and cast out demons and teach to the crowds because he wanted to be this glorified Messiah, this sideshow. Come watch Jesus, the freaky magician, his tricks and illusions. Jesus has come because he wants to be partners with people. Come alongside him and work in the kingdom of God. He wants to be in relationship, that there would be a friendship, a give and take. He wanted these disciples to participate with him. He wanted them to have faith in him. That they were in this together. That he was there with them. One of the things that strikes me most about this story is how much it resonates with every single one of us who as a follower of Christ. Those of us who have a personal relationship with Jesus because chaos and storms are a part of our everyday lives in this world. I don't think anybody can deny that. And we are called to be in relationship with Jesus in the same way the disciples were, to have faith in him, what he is doing, to participate in what he is doing in the kingdom of God. Let's take a closer look at this story, what Jesus does. When there's a storm and the disciples are freaked out, he doesn't turn to them and say, where's your faith? He settles the storm. And then he points to them the areas where they can grow. First, he's there to comfort them and take away their fears. And then he challenges them by asking them to have more faith. First, Jesus takes away the chaos. And then he asks his followers to come to a new place. A place to have faith in what they've seen and experienced in a completely new way that makes us say, who is this guy? Let's take a look at another story where fear and faith go hand in hand. A little bit further on in Mark um, chapter 5, starting at verse 24. So Jesus went with him. That's the conclusion of a previous story. (laughs) A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out for him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. There's a lot we could say in unpacking the story, but for our purposes tonight, I want to point out just one thing. This woman has endured a storm of illness for 12 years, and she is healed by her faith. Her faith that simply drawing near to Jesus would be enough. Just reaching out and touching his cloak would be enough. 
And faith is the channel through which Jesus heals her. And then he calls her out and she comes to him with fear and trembling. It is her fear and her faith that draw her to Jesus. And this is a story we see over and over again in the gospel. And I would say throughout the Bible, fear and faith are intermingled to draw people closer to Jesus, to draw people closer to God. A few years ago, I went through a particularly difficult, chaotic period in my own life. It was kind of the perfect storm, so to speak. Great pun, I know. When I was feeling pretty down and a combination of factors, including returning from living overseas for a while, the horrible end to a terrible relationship, don't have anything good to say about that, and suddenly losing someone really close to me sent me spiraling downward into a really awful clinical depression. Everything looked fine on the surface, but underneath there was a terrible storm that had its grip on me. I wanted to quit everything. I was in graduate school at the time, and I wanted to leave everything and everyone behind. I was overwhelmed with sadness, but probably above anything else, I was afraid. Every day I would wake up and be afraid because nothing had changed. I'd fallen deeper into the pit. The darkness had grown darker. I was afraid that I had brought all of this on myself. I was afraid that I was never going to know God's love again. I was afraid that Jesus had abandoned me. I was overwhelmed with sadness, and the storm continued for close to a year. I can honestly say that, like the disciples, my fear drove me to Jesus, where I would regularly say, Don't you care about me? Don't you care that I'm at the end of my rope? Aren't you going to help me at the bottom of this pit? Where are you? And although I wasn't aware of it at all at the time, like Todd was saying earlier, Jesus was present with me, sustaining me as I went through counseling, as I had a community of people that gathered around me. And every once in a great while, I would hear in my heart the words, Peace, be still. Now, my climb out of that pit was certainly not instantaneous, like the calming of the storm. In fact, it was too much slower than I wanted it to be. But eventually, I was lifted out. And as I look back at that time now, I was challenged in my faith as my fear shrunk and my trust grew. And more importantly, like the disciples with the calming of the storm and the bleeding woman with their healing, I was in awe of Jesus calming my storm. I had a new picture of Jesus as comforter and sustainer of a God who loved me and did and does care about me. My initial fears pushed me to a new place in my faith. When you really start to think about it, faith is its a crazy thing. It's not something that's static. It's not something that we can be like, okay, awesome. Got my faith, going to put it in this jar, shelf here. Now I'm going to go play my video games. We can't corner the market on faith. It's dynamic. It's always changing. Just as quickly as you find faith, 
You lose it when something unexpected or frightening or some sort of storm comes into our lives. And then we panic and it's gone. And when we talk about faith, we usually assume it's the opposite of doubt and fear. That faith should get rid of fear and doubt. But as we see in these two stories in Mark and know from experiences in our lives, faith and fear go hand in hand. Our faith and our doubt and our fear, they're intermingled. They go together. Anne Lamont writes this quote. She's one of my favorite authors, and I say this all the time, over and over. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. Faith includes noticing that we're fearful and letting that be a reality until we know a light of Jesus or comfort of Jesus in our lives. Faith isn't the elimination of fear and doubt. It's the acknowledgement that we have fear and doubt. It's going to Jesus in spite of our fears, in spite of our doubts, so that we can turn to him and say, Jesus, don't you care? Where are you? I'm so afraid. It's in those moments that we will reach out and grab his cloak because we know we've experienced something of him so far that was real in our lives and we desperately want to get more of it, no matter how uncertain or fearful we might be. In those moments of extreme fear and doubt, we are drawn to Jesus, where he again amazes us. We can see him in a completely new way. In the midst of chaos and brokenness, Jesus silences your fears. He calls on your faith that he can be trusted. And he will carry you through whatever storm you might be encountering. But you have to bring your fears to him. In closing tonight, I want to do something a little bit differently. Because I think that all of us who are followers of Jesus can admit that we are a lot like those disciples on that boat in the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it doesn't seem like when the storm's over, there's going to be anything left. But Jesus finds what is left, and he makes it thrive. So I want us tonight to end just a couple minutes spending time to reflect on this passage as individuals. Now, you can close your eyes, or you can keep them open, whatever you're most comfortable with. But I want us to take some time to put ourselves on that boat on the Sea of Galilee. Put yourself in that boat. Traveling across the sea, leaving the shore. Now, if you're not in a place tonight where you can do that, where you can put yourself on on the boat, that's totally fine. Feel free to tune me out. But if you are, take some time to imagine you're in that boat. You're just starting to leave the shore, and people are getting smaller, and there's other people on the boat. Maybe the disciples are there with you. And as you're traveling, you see that Jesus is there too. He's on the boat as well. And you're traveling across the water, and everything's calm, and suddenly you begin to feel the wind pick up slightly. 
There's some sudden gusts that start to rock the boat back and forth. And pretty soon, this has grown into a full-fledged storm. Huge wind and waves start coming from out of nowhere, and they start to rock the boat back and forth. There's water coming over the side of the boat. It's getting a little bit crazy. People are running around and trying to steady themselves, holding on for dear life. Now, the storm that's rocking the boat back and forth, it can be a lot of things that cause the storm to happen. Maybe that storm for you involves being completely overwhelmed in your life. Overwhelmed with school, with pressure to succeed, with what you're going to do with your future, with trying to look really good in front of other people. Maybe that is what's causing your storm, your boat to be all over the place. Or maybe it's family chaos. Maybe you're suffering from a dark depression where there is no light at all. Or maybe your storm is your own sin that you've been unable to admit to yourself or to admit to God. Whatever the storm is that's tossing your boat back and forth and causing water to come over the sides and causing you to fall over, take a moment and turn And look at Jesus. He's right there in the boat with you. You almost forgot he was there, didn't you? Grab onto the side of that boat. Steady yourself. Walk over to Jesus. And as you stand in front of him, tell Jesus what you're afraid of. What is it that you most fear? Like the disciples, are you fearful he doesn't care about you? Tell him whatever you need to tell him. What is it that you are afraid of? Now watch Jesus as he stands up, looks straight at you, and says, Peace, be still.